Father, we are humbled by what has taken place in our world over the past two months. Father, we're not sure of the purposes of what happened, but regardless, Lord, You have our attention. You have our fullest attention. God, we are incredibly thankful for these young men and women. God, how You have used institutions like the family and institutions like the local church to grow them and saturate them in Your Gospel and holiness and morality. God, we are thankful for these things. In a world that continues to devalue the family and devalue the local church, God, here in our little corner of the world, Father, we still value them. We hold them in the highest of esteem because they are ordained by You. Father, would You move in the hearts of these graduates Lord, take what they have learned and continue to stir up their affections for You and Your Word, Father. God, would You go before them and protect them into whatever uncharted territory that You may have for them, God, as they go into studies and into work, and Lord, eventually into finding a spouse and, and, and all the things of adulthood. Father, would they, would they supplant themselves upon the solid rock of Jesus Christ And Lord, by Your grace, by Your Holy Spirit, will You hold them fast there for years and years to come. Father, would You help us to feel a sense of pride that there is in this, but at the very same time, as parents and grandparents and spiritual parents, spiritual grandparents, as a local church, as graduates and siblings, Father, would You help us to feel the humility in knowing that it is by Your grace and grace alone that we stand here this morning. And it is only because of the bloodshed of Your Son, Jesus Christ, that we are made a way unto salvation, that we can become children of God through His blood. Lord, would You let that be the battle cry of these graduates. Not just for today or tomorrow, but for the remainder of their lives. Would You, by Your grace, by Your Holy Spirit, rekindle that cry and that fire, week after week, month after month, and year after year, and let it spread like a wildfire through the people that they will influence. Father, we love You. We cannot thank You enough for the immeasurable blessings that You have bestowed upon us, Father. And it's all possible. And it's the name that we pray in, in Jesus' name, Your Son's name. Amen. Amen. Well, as Pastor Nathan did say, this is a worship service. And if you have been sticking around with us on Wednesday nights, I don't know if any of you have been following, we've been going through Second Timothy, and we learned just this past week that preaching the Word of God is an essential part of our worship services. And so I do pray that you will allow me just a few minutes here to open up God's Word and to seek what he has for us this morning. Pastor Nathan began in Exodus uh, a couple of weeks ago, and we're continuing through Exodus today. He came into my office about three weeks ago, and we were talking about this service. 
And, uh, and he was going to give me the opportunity to preach it, which I'm very thankful for every opportunity he gives me. And, uh, and he said, hey, there's this passage in Exodus. This is where we're going to be at the end of chapter 2. Do you think this is a, a, somehow a graduate sermon? And we, we looked at each other, and we, we love God, and we love God's Word, and we said, oh, yes. This is God's Word, and it is certainly a graduate sermon, because all of God's Word is indeed that. And so we have arrived this morning at Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 through 25. And as is, as is the custom here at Bethany, we like to stand in reverence for the Word of God. So if you are physically able, and if you do, you do have a copy of God's Word, I pray that you'll grab one in front of your pew if you do not have one. Turn to Exodus chapter 2. 11 through 25, and please stand for the reading of God's Word. And as we finish up that reading of God's Word, I will say, this is the Word of the Lord, and you will respond by saying, thanks be to God. Exodus 2, chapter 11. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Rule, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter, Sipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. You may be seated. And so where we are in this particular passage in Exodus, how we got here, is a, a few weeks ago, Nathan rolled us through the biblical narrative all the way from the dawning of creation in Genesis chapter 1, that God breathed and There was light, and then he formed man from the dust, and then those men fell into sin with Adam and Eve, and they were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, so to speak, and they began to populate the earth. And somewhere amidst that population, over the course of many, many years, God established a covenant with his people by way of a man named Abraham. And through this covenant came more forefathers to follow in Abraham's lineage, Isaac, Jacob, And Joseph, and at the end of Genesis, we see how Joseph became second in command in Egypt, but he passed away, and over the course of 400 years, God's people in Egypt 
fell under the regime of slavery because there was a new Pharaoh in the land and he did not remember God's people. Enter into chapter 2, and there is a mandate to kill all of the newborn boys of the Israelite people. And if you remember the story correctly, Moses' mother, being full of faith, placed Moses in a basket. And Moses goes down the Nile River, preserved his life, and eventually fell into the hands of Pharaoh's daughter. And she had pity and mercy on this little Hebrew child, and she wanted to raise this child. And lo and behold, Moses' sister and his mother became influential figures, his birth sister and his birth mother in his life, even though Moses technically had a stepmother with Pharaoh's daughter. Well, that's where we end in verse 10, where it talks about the child grew older, became Pharaoh's daughter's son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water, which is what the name Moses means, to draw out. And we enter into verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, there are little words, but they cover a big chunk of time here. So <clears throat> Moses' life, as Nathan described a couple weeks ago, can basically be divided three ways. His first 40 years in Egypt, his second 40 years not in Egypt, and then his last 40 years rescuing the Israelites from Egypt, leading them to the Promised Land. And so where we find Moses right here is, when it says he had grown up, Moses is about 40 years old. He's a grown man. And I want you to see how God was moving behind the scenes of the life of Moses. And God moves the same way today as he does then. Oftentimes, we are so focused on God's miraculous hand. God, will you rescue my loved one from a terminal disease? God, will you save the worst sinner in my family? And we're, we're so focused upon God's miraculous hand in which he moves but oftentimes, what we do when we're so focused on those is we neglect to see God's proverbial hand that is working in the background. And oftentimes, it takes God years and years and years to work, and that's okay because God is always good. And we see in Moses' life, and I think if you look at your own life, you can see how there are events, relationships, different tragedies maybe even that took place in your life that have by God's grace, worked for your good, for your growth in holiness. And we can look back on those and say, you know what? Even when I didn't feel God moving and working somewhere back here, His proverbial hand was always moving. He never stopped. He continued to move. And there became a time over the course of years and years and years where I said, aha, this is the big thing God was doing. But I was expecting it to look much differently. I was expecting it to be immediate. But not so with our wise God sometimes. And that's exactly what was taking place in Moses' life. You see, to the average onlooker, the fact that Moses' life was threatened along with all of his other Hebrew males at the time, that would be not a good thing. That would be a frightening thing. That would be a future destroyer. But what God did amidst the details of Moses' life that he did not even see at the time. He couldn't comprehend. Little baby Moses, that God was 
forming and creating and pushing Moses towards a godly future and a godly heritage. And so Moses goes out to his people and he looks on their burdens, verse 11, and he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. First thing I'll mention this morning is that Moses never forgot who his people were. I want you to picture what happened with Moses as he was adopted into this Egyptian family. He was one of God's people, a Yahweh worshiper. That's what his family was. And in the Egyptian household, they were not God worshipers. They were not Yahweh worshipers. And so Moses is raised in this sort of pagan environment with different gods. Moses is raised very wealthy with all of the stuff. In Egyptian life, the Hebrews were treated at this point uh, as not even really being alive. They were the walking dead, if you will. They were slaves. And even in the Egyptian sort of system, there were taskmasters, which is what the guy who Moses kills here is, who were working class. And then there were a big gap between the elite. And Moses finds himself in the family of an elite. Uh, He is the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And so Moses is raised with the best education, with the best stuff, with the best financial security, with the best authority and power. Yet here we find in verse 11 that he doesn't consider the Egyptian people his people. He considers the Hebrew people, the slaves in the land, his people. Students, don't ever forget who your people are. Don't ever forget who your people are. Um, I recently lived a few years in Kentucky, which is a foreign land for a South Alabama guy, let me tell you. And, uh, and I was up there for a few years, and I had the privilege of serving at a church and getting my seminary education there and meeting a lot of nice friends up there. <clears throat> and what I found out is, is that I was the only person who talked like I do up there, aside from a couple others who came from Alabama. And I was the only person who ate like like I did up there. Uh, they don't know what fried cornbread fritters are up there. But what I what I quickly found out is that there were men and women who had been radically transformed by the grace of God. There were Jesus followers there. And those were my people. More so than my boys that I hung out with in high school who no longer followed the Lord or never followed the Lord or went on their own way, right? But Moses says, these are my people, not, I believe, not just because of the fact that I'm a descendant of a Hebrew, but because we worship the same God. Because there is a bond between us, because we have different morality, different theology, different understanding of life and death. These are my people. Look at verse 12. And he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. So Moses comes out. He gets angry because one of his people were getting poorly treated. And he looks both ways and he kills the guy. Okay? Let's not get caught up in different words in the Bible. What we just witnessed is murder. Moses kills the guy in a passion, and he has nowhere else to put him. And they're in Egypt, a lot of sand, very convenient. And Moses buries him in the sand. 
Moses had a sense of justice. He saw something going on wrong, but Moses didn't handle that in the correct way. What we see from Moses is he makes an emotional decision, which are never good, and he strikes him down, and he acted irrationally. The problem with Moses is that he wanted justice to be served, and he wanted there to be a savior for his people, but for a brief minute there, he forgot and believed that he was that savior for his people. Moses sinned. And when he believes his sin is found out, look at verse 13. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. Verse 16. Excuse me, verse 15. When Merah heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And so Moses finds himself in a situation very similar to some of us. Uh, when we get caught in the wrong, we flee. <clears throat> I ran from my mother one time that I can remember when I was growing up, and it was uh, when I was supposed to be showering, okay? She sent me to take a shower. And I, I did not like taking a shower as a little boy, okay? I know it's, I've grown out of it, so don't think I'm a gross guy, okay? I'm not spreading the rona because I haven't showered in weeks. But, um, but I went into the bathroom and I began to run the sink to fool my mom that I was taking a shower. And I changed into the clothes that I was supposed to be taking. I had to be about six or seven at the time. And I came out and I plopped down on the couch and started playing video games or watching TV. I can't remember. It was probably one or the other with me at that age. And she comes around and she starts asking me questions about my shower, it's very weird, right? And so I'm answering her, and I'm telling her, yeah, I definitely took the shower. And, uh, and my dead giveaway that I forgot, I forgot to change the socks. And she sees the socks on my feet, and they still have grass stains on them from where I've been playing basketball and my sock feet out in the driveway, you know. And, uh, and, and she comes at me, and I just take off running. I say, no, Mama, no, and I'm gone. And I can remember what it felt like as I grew into teenagerhood, how that sort of developed a little differently. But there were definitely times where, when my sin was found out, I was on the run. And Moses finds himself in the same boat. But did he make the wrong choice? I want you to look with me, if you will, quickly, or listen along. Hebrews chapter 11. If you don't know anything about Hebrews, especially chapter 11. Chapter 11 is what some people call the Hall of Fame of uh, the Old Testament or the patriarchs. And so the writer of Hebrews goes through some of our favorites from the Old Testament and talks highly of them. He talks of Noah. He talks of Abraham. And the point that he's getting at is that Jesus is greater than these people. But in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24 and 25, the writer of Hebrews is speaking of Moses when he says, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. And so the writers of Hebrew uh, are several uh, years later, right? Way, way later in history. And they have the benefit of looking back at what took place with Moses and seeing that what happened to Moses actually wasn't a bad thing. In the time, maybe even Moses was making the right call. It says, in faith, Moses counted himself as one of his own people to be mistreated. Instead of pursuing the fleeting pleasures of sin, 
like his Egyptian brothers and sisters. We see Moses as second in command, and this is a little bit of conjecture. You'll have to grant me that. But I believe that it's possible that Moses, if he were to fess up to what he did when he killed that guy that day, that it would be a slap on the wrist for poor Moses and he'd go back to business as usual. He killed a taskmaster. In Egyptian society where justice is very skewed, I don't see any punishment coming Moses' way for that. Maybe you don't eat for a day or two. I don't know. I don't know. But he is so far above the working class. He is an elite. But Moses, in a split second, even though he did the wrong thing and committed a sin of killing the guy, he made the decision to flee and to run away from those in Egypt. And Hebrews tells us, looking in hindsight, that he made the correct decision that by faith Moses left his wealth and luxury and sinful lifestyle in Egypt and instead chose to identify with the mistreated Hebrews, with his own people. We can't help but be reminded when we look at Hebrews 11 that this is reminiscent of Jesus who came and denied the pleasures of heaven and the exalted status and the riches, and the wealth, and the comfortability. And Jesus submitted Himself and took the form of flesh and human and came and dwelt among us and identified with the sinful and identified with His people. That even when we learn about Moses here, and we're going to get to some good stuff about Moses at the end here, that Jesus is the greater Moses. And when this man says to him, Who are you, a prince and a judge over us? The crazy reality is that one day soon Moses will indeed be a prince, that he will indeed be a judge, and there is coming a prince and a judge greater than Moses could ever be to save the people from their slavery. Thanks be to God for that. Moses never forgot who his people were. And look at verse 15 there at the end of it. You'll read along with me. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now, Midian was southeast of Egypt. And the Midianites were actually distant relatives of the Israelites. They weren't Yahweh worshippers. They weren't God worshippers. But distant relatives. The Midianites actually sprang from one of Abraham's other wives besides Sarah. And so Moses ends up going down here to get away in Midian. Can you imagine Moses' feelings at this point? I want you to place yourself in his shoes. Forty years in Egypt, very near the top of power, luxury, wealth, education, right standing, a lot of right decisions. Moses makes a horrible, emotional, sinful decision and commits murder. And now he's on the run. And he believes people are after him. And Moses comes to Midian, beat up, tired, worn. Now, I want you to look at those last few words in verse 15. And he sat down by a well. What do we know about wells in the Old Testament? Well, we do know that Isaac and Jacob both found godly heritages and experiences at wells when they met their wives. We do know that Jesus himself in John chapter 4 had an incredible encounter at the at the well with a woman. 
And the well is representative, especially in the Old Testament, of a place where life and sustenance burst forth. That people would gather at the well to drink, and it would be the staple of the community. And God is showing Moses, I do believe, grant me a little bit of liberty in the Scripture here, to say that Moses, even when you are at your worst, even when you don't see a way out of the calamity that you have caused, I am providing a well. There is hope. There is a breath of redemption that God longs to breathe. And the message for you as you look at Moses and you look at the next few verses and how God moved on behalf of Moses is that no matter where you find yourself in your life, no matter what decisions you have made and no matter how hopeless you may feel, that God longs to breathe the breath of redemption over your life. And there is never anything you can do that is so terrible that God's mighty breath of redemption can't breathe you back to life and His hand will be working all things behind the scenes for your good if you say yes to Him and follow Him. And that is the message of Moses at this very point. And we'll see as it flips in verse 16 where things begin to look up for Moses. And here we have graduates speaking to them this morning and I, I pray that we tell them that it's not always going to be perfect. You're not going to make the right decision every time. Many of them are going to be forced to make decisions that they don't have a lot of foreknowledge of. And many of them may be driven by their emotions from left to right, even though scriptures say they, they shouldn't be. They should find their root in the Bible, but it is oh so difficult. And I pray that we would have grace and speak grace over them, that we would be people as family members and as a church where they can come to and they can say, this is how desperate I am. This is what I've done. This is how messed up I've done. Or maybe on the flip side, maybe something else, maybe... This is how overwhelming my life has become. I have deadlines. I have bills to pay. I have relationships with my spouse maybe later on. And we can look at them in their eyes and say, there is nothing too far gone for the breath of God's redemption to breathe life back into you. Submit to Him and say yes to Him regardless of the circumstances happening around you because He longs to make everything new in your life. Either today or in the future. That God promises an eternity by His side where all things will be made new. And that is the breath of redemption that carries us through difficult times in life. God drew Moses out of his comfortability in order to draw him into intimacy with Himself. Moses perhaps though he has a knowledge of God, doesn't see God for who God truly is, doesn't have a real experience with God if God doesn't pluck him out of Egypt and take him away from the comforts that he so clings to, take him away from the education that's skewed towards other gods. Oftentimes, God has to draw us out of where we are in order to draw us into his embrace. Let's look at verse 16 and read, What happens next? Now, the priests of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. Let's pause right there. He says, hey, this is a keeper. 
This guy not only watered your flocks, he fought the other men off. You, why didn't you bring him home, daughters? Go get that man. Bring him home. Let's eat some bread together. Come on, man. If you water the flocks for him, too, you got to. Moses had a sense of justice about him. Okay, Even though it was a little wrongly aimed earlier in the section, we see that he's starting to get his footing underneath him. And Moses is an admirable man. Let's not take that away. He serves the Lord and he's a man of justice. Uh, women, when you go to search for your husband, make sure he is a man of justice. Make sure he is a man that when he sees wrongdoing occurring, that he doesn't sit on the sidelines like most of our male population. Make sure that he's willing to act on the behalf for the protection of women. If he doesn't do these things, run away from him. But Moses sought justice. And look at verse 21. Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter, Sipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. What we'll see over the next few verses, we'll talk about in a minute, but what we'll see in chapter 3, where we'll get to next week, is God encounters Moses at the burning bush. And he says to Moses, I am who I am. And really what that is, is, is Moses has a transformational experience with God at that bush. And Moses begins to wholeheartedly say yes to God. God gives him a command to do, to go, go to the Pharaoh and let my people go, right? That whole spiel. And Moses says yes, and he goes and does that. But I want to venture to you in verse 22 here. that Moses is sojourning in a foreign land. That's a fancy word, which means he's a stranger. He doesn't really have a home. He's roaming around. And I want to submit to you that God used the wilderness to prepare Moses for the burning bush. That before Moses ever had an opportunity to have a real experience with God where he says yes fully in his life, God submitted him to a period of what a little research will tell you, 40 years in the wilderness. To seek Him. To prepare Him. To grow Him. There is a continued trend in Scripture where we find people going to the wilderness and having experiences with God. If you'll think back to Genesis, our dear Jacob, he wrestled with God in the wilderness. God touched his hip, changed his life forever. Joseph, when his brothers threw him in the pit, you remember that? They wanted to kill him. It was in the wilderness, Scripture says. Elijah has an encounter with God in the wilderness in 1 Kings 19. God tells Hosea to marry Gomer. If you remember this Old Testament story, in the wilderness, he tells her. There's a picture of God in Israel. And Jesus In the wilderness, Luke chapter 4, endures the temptation of Satan. Do you remember this? And just like Adam was tempted by Satan, Jesus was tempted by Satan, but Jesus was not like the Adam who was before, but he was the new Adam. That he endured the temptation and did not submit to it. That he perfectly endured the temptation in the wilderness. The wilderness is where people meet God. Things get real in the wilderness. Some of you have been living 40 years, 60 years, 80 years of your life 
And even as I'm saying this, you're thinking back to times in your life and you say, things got real in the wilderness. There was a season of my life where I was in the wilderness, where I was searching and seeking for God, and it seemed like He was not there. There were confusing times. There were hurtful times in the wilderness where I cried out to God and I felt like He didn't answer me, but He brought me through and prepared me. He met me eventually in the wilderness. It is in the wilderness that God transforms from taskmaster master to father. When God meets us and shows us for the first time. And perhaps this is where Moses was. Having a knowledge of God. And soon to be fully surrendering to God. There was a time spent in the wilderness. Where God became father real to Moses. And our graduates will have a season in the wilderness. For some, it is likely that what we have been enduring for the past couple of months is a season in the wilderness. Doesn't it just numb you when you think about it? There are much more questions than answers regarding this time that we've been in. It's hard to grasp the motives of a good and loving God. Though He certainly is good and loving. And I believe that God uses times just like these to expose our utter dependence on Him. And then when we are there, He meets us there. And He satisfies the depths of our soul in a way that nothing else could ever satisfy. That we have searched for for years. Maybe it took 39 years in the wilderness with Moses before that last year when he found God. I don't know. But there was searching and there was meeting by God. And we're sending our graduates to various college campuses and various life beginnings with a lot of confusion. Not only are the times confusing, but even if this was this time last year, these places are confusing. These people are confusing. Not everyone is their people. There are different ideologies being presented out there. There are different scriptures being held to out there. There's certainly a different code of moral ethics being held to out there. There are tremendous ups and downs that will be experienced over the next decade for them. But remember this, students, that God uses the wilderness times to prepare you for the burning bush experiences. Trust Him. Trust Him in the wilderness. As we close, let's look at verse 23, 24, and 25 here. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Our God hears, remembers, and He knows. 
He sees all and he knows all and he is always compassionate. You might say, Jake, I know that God gets angry sometimes. He gets angry at sinners. He's he's angry at sin. I would say absolutely. Yes, he is. But it is a compassionate anger. God is always compassionate, always long suffering and always longing for you to come to repentance and to know him. Look at this. Look at these words. That God heard their groaning, that he remembered his covenant, that he saw and that he knew. You don't have to fight for the attention of Almighty God. You have it. You have His full attention. He sees you and He knows you. He hears you and He acts for you. That there are times in life where you will reach struggles and you will cry out to Him and you will wonder if He hears If He knows, if He sees, if He cares, He is far too big. You are far too small. He always sees and knows and remembers. You have His attention. There are people far and wide doing various crazy activities because they long for attention from a man or from a woman or from a father or from a mother or from friends or from an imaginary God that they create that's different from our God. But the God of the Bible always places His full attention on to you. You do not have to fight for it. He sees you, He hears you, and He knows you. He's never distracted. One of the worst things that makes my wife upset, one of the worst things that makes her upset, and this is two weeks in a row throwing her under the bus, is when I come home from work and it's 5 o'clock and I'm supposed to be checking out of work. And I come home and I flip my laptop open and the kids are running around and they want to see me because I haven't been home all day. And they say, Daddy, let's play. And I say, no, I need 30 more minutes. I need 30 more minutes because I need to get my work done. You go and do this. Have you ever done that to your kids? You ever done that to your kids? Graduates, you ever seen that from your parents? It happens. We're imperfect parents. God will never tell you 30 more minutes. He is never into His work so much that He can't stop and give you His ear. He sees you. He knows you. He hears you. And He acts. God is never distracted. Even a great earthly father is a shadow of the perfectly heavenly father that you have. The perfect heavenly father, even a great father, is just a shadow. I venture to say that our God, as we can see here in the text, longs to be bothered by you. He wants to be bothered by you. He wants you to be pulling at his coattails. He wants you to come to him with your arms out wide to be held by him. He longs. Don't stop bothering God. Don't stop crying out to Him. Don't stop running to Him. He sees, He hears, and He knows. Your mind cannot fathom the greatness of a God that always keeps His promises. That never stops working behind the scene of your life for your good. Even in times during the wilderness like this, He will remember His covenantal love And affection for you. 
And if you know Jesus Christ today, that is what you have placed upon you. A covenantal love and affection. It's not a contract. I don't know if you know much about a contract. If one party doesn't uphold their side of the contract, you can rip it to shreds and void the contract. Our God loves us. And by the text, by using the word covenant, illustrates that He enters into a covenant with us. Which means no matter, even if you sometimes fall and void the contract because you don't fulfill your obligations, God will not rip it up. He remains faithful and true when you are faithless. He will love you through it. His covenantal love, attention, affection is placed onto you if you know Jesus for eternity. Regardless of the wilderness that you may be experiencing around you. Regardless of the times. And if you don't know Him, if you don't know Him, then the wilderness that you are in is useless. It's of no good. If the wilderness that you're experiencing in your life, if the hurt, the trouble, the uncertainty, the anxiety, if it does not lead you to the foot of the cross of Calvary, then it's all in vain. And so, students, parents, grandparents, and family, He hears you. He knows you. Call out to Him. And enter in. To this covenant. Let's pray. Father, we do love you. God, we thank you. I'm not sure what that noise is, if it's rain or what is going on out there, God, but Father, in here, you are good. God, we're so thankful to gather together. God, I know personally I can say this. That I am thankful that there were some times in my life where I needed your attention. And I did not have to fight for it. You were there. I pray that there are parents, grandparents, siblings, cousins in this room who can look back on their life and say, there were times when I needed God and He was there. Didn't have to fight for His attention And I pray that as we see these graduates off in a way today, that we'll be able to impart this wisdom onto them. That there will be times when it may be hard to see the hand of God moving in the background, where it may be hard to believe that He sees and that He knows and that He hears. But learning from some people who have been through the wilderness, we can take it for certain that we have the attention of an almighty Creator God who loves us with an unstoppable, never-ending love. So much so that He sent the greater Moses, Jesus Himself, to die on the cross for the sins of all who will trust in Him. To make us sons and daughters of the one true God. So Father, would You fill our graduates with faith, God, with hope, with supernatural trust as they're 
still sort of in this confusing time and in this wilderness, God, and they're moving into even more uncertainty, I believe. Father, they need you. And Father, we know that you are a man of your word. So God, would your word be applied to the hearts of your people today? And it's in the mighty name of Jesus that we ask this.